Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast, the bi-monthly United Statesian show that explores a wide range of controversies and curiosities, conspiracies and pseudoscience using science and critical thinking. This is the show for the first half of February 2017, and I'm your host, Stuart Robbins. Not as usual, I'm joined by Adam Gardner. Uh, what's up, Cuboids? Christina Roach. Hello. Darren McGee. Hi, everyone. And TRC producer Pat. Longtime listener, first-time guest. Glad to be here, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so we have six fascinating segments for you. But before we get to those, this is clearly not a typical episode. And for those of you who listen to some other podcast from across the border may recognize that intro and the names that I've just read and the greetings. In a first for me, this is a crossover podcast not seen since the Flintstones met the Jetsons. And I invited the crew... <laughs> Uh, we're the Jetsons in this example. Yeah, let's let's not think too hard about <laughs> <Wait>. this one. <laughs> I've invited the crew of the Reality Check podcast over to talk about space. But before we even get started with that, I'd like each of you to introduce yourselves and tell the listeners something that they may not know about you from your own show, because rarely do you actually talk about yourselves. Pat, let's start with you. What do you do on the Reality Check and what brought you to skepticism and maybe something that the listeners of your own show don't know about you? Well, so I, what brought me to skepticism is a pretty easy answer. In the early 2000s, there was this Fox show about um, the idea that the moon landings were a conspiracy. And I spoke to someone at work about it. And he sent me a bunch of Phil Plate's blog posts about it. And that was definitely a jumping off point for me into sort of skepticism and the, the idea of debunking. Um, I guess there have been several moments since then. Um, Bill Nye's 100 Greatest uh, his show about the hundred greatest was definitely uh, a point, and me discovering the SGU was definitely a, a point that sort of led me to this. What do people not know about me? I was once sued by DC Comics. I think I might have mentioned that once on the show, but it was very, very long. It was a very, very long time ago. So I was once sued by DC Comics for. Um, Your physique infringing on Superman's copyright? This is exactly <laughs> it. I'm glad that Darren finished that for me. So that's me. All right. Uh, Christina, what about you? Jeez, that's a tough one. Um, Well, I guess we'll start with um, skepticism and how I became involved with the whole critical thinking movement. And that really also has a lot to do with um, meeting Pat and uh, getting to know Pat. And and the 100 uh, Greatest Discoveries in Physics definitely was a huge influence. I got really interested in astronomy and um, learned about the Ottawa Skeptic which is is the national capital of Canada. And uh, that was pretty much it. And then as I started to delve into it, became more and more interested. Um, I don't know if there's anything, I mean, I think our listeners pretty much know I'm a Raptors fan, a big basketball fan, and I work with rock stars for a living. So So I I actually, you guys have revamped your webpage. I saw on the about page that you're a Juno award winner and producer of music and stuff too. Not a producer of music, but um, I have uh, worked with several artists that have won um, different cool awards like Juno's, which is uh, Canada's Grammys, basically, um, and other artists that have either won Grammys or uh, have platinum selling records and that sort of thing. So Cool. All right. Uh, so next up, let's go with Darren. 
Hi there. So I, uh, I've always been interested in science and critical thinking. Uh, somewhat unlike Pat or Christina, I can't point to a specific event, show, or person, but I've always just sort of thought it was interesting to see what are the details behind something, really looking for the evidence of things. I somewhat stumbled into this just by happening to know a previous host of the Reality Check that I moved to Ottawa. He was doing the show with John and Adam and a couple other people, asked if I wanted to join them. I liked the idea of some sort of media outreach. I liked the idea of trying to present ideas that I found interesting to more people. And uh, that's sort of where it's come from. I've sort of always seen the, the broader issue of applying critical thinking to all domains, as well as, even though I think science is the best game in town, highlighting its deficits. As for something that people might not know, uh, when I was younger, I was a huge fan of martial arts, so I took some karate, and uh, I know kung fu. Uh, so last but definitely not least is the man who belongs in the air, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> Great reference, Stuart. I, I can't say exactly when my interest in skepticism began, but I think I was always sort of predisposed to that. You know, the TV psychics and televangelists and things like that always kind of bothered me. And a friend of mine uh, from work, Halden, uh, was one of the uh, earlier members of Ottawa Skeptics, and he just sort of let me know about it, and I immediately took to it. Uh, these, these kinds of people are totally on board with, with what I want. It sort of clicked like this is, you know, it's been in the back of my head uh, burning, and, and I just took to it really quickly. Um, and then uh, I got along well with John, so this whole uh, radio thing happened. Um, and something people don't know about me, um, there have actually been six atoms on the reality check, um, and some come and go and replace others. The first few were really juvenile. Um, so that's why the tone of my segments changes a lot. Uh, one of them didn't even like cats, and you guys didn't even notice. So. Well, okay. There's a sophisticated notion of continuity and personal identity that Adam's raising, as he tends to do with philosophical issues. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, so with that intro out of the way, let's go and uh, get started right in with the segment. So first up, um, I've randomly rolled the dice, and we're going to go with Darren. For these segments, what I did was I've gotten a lot of feedback over the years from uh, my own podcast, uh, those of you listening to this through my feed, the Exposing Pseudo Astronomy podcast, you know what that is. Those on the TRC listening through that feed, if this stays in the show, uh, it's Exposing Pseudo Astronomy. And I've gotten a lot of feedback from people who want me to address various topics that I have in a massive list of requests. And many of them I still haven't been able to get to. And so when we talked about doing this crossover show, I asked if you guys would be willing to talk about some of those things that I haven't been able to get to yet, especially because a lot of them I thought were kind of shorter and uh, could do really well with the reality check style treatment. So the first one is we're told that black holes kind of can swallow anything, but some people think that we might be living inside of a black hole already, that it's our entire universe. So Darren, what's going on? That's a great question, Stuart. So first, although your listeners probably know this, let's quickly clarify what a black hole is. It's a region of space from which nothing, including light, can escape. It reflects nothing, thus the blackness. General relativity indicates it's the result of the curving of space-time caused by a very dense mass. Now, under quantum mechanics, black holes have a temperature and get smaller very slowly due to emitting Hawking radiation. So they actually can release some sort of energy and then that causes them to shrink over time. 
Most black holes are made when a supergiant star dies, leaves behind a mass that is at least one solar mass, the mass of our sun. Stars die when they run out of hydrogen or other nuclear fuel to burn and iron is produced. Iron does not give off energy, and therefore the star has no fuel, and in a short amount of time the star collapses. Forgive some of the Wikipedia quote here, but astronomers have identified numerous stellar black hole candidates and have also found evidence of supermassive black holes at the center of every galaxy. After observing the motion of nearby stars for 16 years, in 2008, astronomers found compelling evidence that a supermassive black hole of more than 4 million solar masses is located near the Sagittarius A region in the center of the Milky Way galaxy. So just a quick note, it's Sagittarius A star. Oh, I was going to say the asterisk, but good. Okay, (laughs) I I can say it again. (laughs) It's not meant to be a footnote. It's actually called Sagittarius A star. The asterisk says pedantry is important. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) And that's why one of us does this for a living. (laughs) Now, one of the questions associated with what is a black hole is how fast a black hole can consume energy or matter. And it really depends on the size of the black hole and has proximity to anything else. And it's just going to be variable depending on those issues. Now, one website I saw that said a black hole is going to eat about one solar mass every 3,000 years. This one that I mentioned. So it's not really a lot. One cent every 3,000 years. Mm Mm-hmm. Of course, the big question was, why would someone think our universe is in a black hole, or at least came from one? Mm-hmm. Well, typically, when people talk about the origin of the universe, they imagine an infinitely dense and hot point. That's sort of the common idea. Big Bang is expanding outwards, then you go backwards in time, and everything squishes down to some point. And I think this is because the math just goes to infinity, meaning there either actually was infinite energy at the beginning of the universe, or maybe the models are wrong. Anyway, when black holes are described, they are also said to take matter to an infinitely dense point, a singularity. Two singularities make a similar phenomena, maybe that's the logic, but that doesn't quite hold. Also, perhaps some people think of the event horizon of a black hole as something similar to the edge of our expanding universe. This is someone guessing about why people even think this in the first place. Mm -hmm. An article on National Geographic, which you can find linked on our website at trcpodcast.com, discusses the ideas of physicist Nikodem Paplaski at the University of New Haven. He thinks the black hole singularity may just be due to math, but the origin of our universe is different. The compacting process in a black hole halts, according to this physicist, because black holes spin. They spin extremely rapidly, possibly close to the speed of light, and this spin endows the compacted seed, as he's calling it, with a huge amount of torsion. It's not just small and heavy, it's also twisted and compressed, like one of those jokey spring-loaded snakes in a can. (laughs) But like a universe. Peanut brittle. Exactly. (laughs) Peanut brittle. Our universe is kind of brittle. (laughs) Which can suddenly unspring with a bang. Make that a big bang. Or, what this physicist says, a big bounce. Like that peanut brittle. It's possible, in other words, that a black hole is a conduit. A one-way door, says Dr. Pawlowski, between two universes. This means that if you tumble into the black hole at the center of the Milky Way, it's conceivable that you, or at least the shredded particles that were once you, <laughs> will end up in another universe. This other universe isn't inside ours, as Dr. Pawlowski. The hole is merely the link, like a shared root that connects two aspen trees. Well, that sounds good. And you know some of that terminology? It is conceivable. Like, oh, really? You can conceive of it? Well, so Star Wars is conceivable, as Adam knows, but it's still not real. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Brian Koberlin, who is a bit less keen on this idea, says a couple things. First, quote, to begin with, the universe did not begin with an explosion from a single point. It was definitely very hot and dense in its early period, but it didn't begin as a singularity. In fact, there is debate whether black holes themselves have singularities. So whether there are similarities between these two ideas, we can't simply equate them. This is a reminder that everything is debatable in all things. Well, it seems to me that it's like he's using language 
to say, because we use the same terms for these two things, that must mean <laughs> they're the same, when that might not really apply. Of course. And as we know, it's pretty hard to get a lot of good evidence for a lot of the nice math that works out in astronomical theories. Oh, yeah. Now, if and black holes are where we divide by zero. <laughs> right. Which usually you get a big old undefined on your calculator, but oh. instead they're like, no, let me tell you about the birth of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> if we think about being in a black hole, it just doesn't quite fit. And this is a quote from Brian. Our universe isn't collapsing in on itself. It's expanding at an ever-increasing rate. So it doesn't have the necessary structure to be the interior of a black hole. Mm -hmm. But there are some models that do propose that our universe was formed by the black hole of another universe. These models are very speculative, but generally propose that the super-dense interior of a black hole could create a baby universe that expands to become its own universe. Technically, you could say this new universe is in, in quotes, the black hole that spawned it, but because of the bendable nature of space and time, that's not particularly meaningful. The new universe would in no way be limited by the size of the black hole and would exist on its own once it formed. So in conclusion, this is a very interesting idea. And these, both these commentators kind of agree. Uh, one physicist thinks it's a good idea. Another one's like, well, it's an interesting idea, but there is actually no evidence to support it. Cosmological theories are delightful candy for the mind, but they really aren't filling because there often isn't anything of substance to back them up. <laughs> nice analogy. Thanks, Darren, for poking holes in that perhaps filling or maybe not so filling idea. If we're not in an endless wasteland of quantum fields and virtual particles and maybe singularities with a little bit of twist thrown in, maybe we'll be visited by other beings. Pat, can you tell us something about the Drake equation? Well, so before we get to the Drake equation, we have to do a bit of background. Frank Drake is an American astronomer who is interested in something that had been proposed by physicists Giuseppe Cacconi and Philip Morrison. In a 1959 paper in the Journal of Nature, they proposed that radio telescopes had become sensitive enough to pick up possible radio transmissions from other civilizations. They also suggested that these signals might be transmitted at wavelengths of 21 centimeters, something known as the hydrogen line. And if you want to know what that is, you should probably ask Stuart. Yeah, well, so we also like to sometimes call it the cosmic watering hole. It's basically, right. it has to do with quantum mechanics. It's where uh, there is a particular line in the emission spectrum of hydrogen and people think that that might be sort of the, the watering hole, uh, where a lot of civilizations might transmit if they're looking for other civilizations, because it's sort of one of those universal things like prime numbers, as opposed to randomly transmitting at, I don't know, uh, 109.4 FM. <laughs> right. So in 1960, Drake was the first guy to start looking for those signals at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Greenbank, West Virginia. Then in 1961, the National Academy of Sciences organized a meeting on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. The meeting included people like Carl Sagan and previously mentioned Philip Morrison. Frank Drake was the host of the meeting. Here's a quote. As I planned the meeting, I realized a few days ahead of time we needed an agenda. And so I wrote down all the things that you needed to know to predict how hard it's going to be to detect extraterrestrial life. And looking at them, it became pretty evident that if you multiplied all these together, you got a number, N, which is the number of detectable civilizations in our galaxy. This was aimed at the radio search and not to search for primordial or primitive life forms. 
So essentially, the Drake equation is a way of organizing all the questions that Drake thought were important to consider in order to arrive at an estimate of the number of active, communicating civilizations in our galaxy, and the goal was to stimulate conversation among the scientists. So looking at the equation itself, it looks like a bit of gibberish. We'll break it down. Hmm. It has eight pieces. N equals. This is what we're trying to solve for the number of detectable, intelligent, communicating civilizations in the galaxy. R is the rate of yearly star formation. A simple estimate just takes the total number of stars in our galaxy and divides by the age of the galaxy. And then this is multiplied by FP, which is the fraction of those stars with planets. It's hard to have life without planets. <laughs> so then we multiply by NE, and this is the number of those planets per solar system suitable for life. So, for example, one main criteria would very likely be liquid water. And then this is multiplied by FL, the fraction of those planets on which life actually appears. And then that's multiplied by FI. That's the fraction of those planets on which intelligence arises. And then we multiply that by FC, and that's the fraction of those that would have the desire and the technology to communicate. And then finally, this is multiplied by L. And that's the length of time that these civilizations would be communicating. Mm -hmm. I've seen a couple of different claims for what the scientists used in 1961 to fill out this equation. The Wikipedia entry for the Drake equation suggests that they came up with a minimum of 20 and a maximum of 50 million. Yeah. <laughs> In a 2010 BBC documentary called The Search for Life, The Drake Equation, Frank Drake himself is asked to plug in the numbers that they used in 1961. He said that they estimated the rate of star formation was 10 per year. He suggested that they had indirect evidence about the fraction of stars which had planets from binary stars, so they used 0.5. He said they used two for the number of planets which could sustain life. And that was based on our solar system and the notion that Mars might have been able to retain an atmosphere if it had been a bit more massive. So you've got the Earth and Mars. Not bad. He then goes on to say that chemical experiments suggest that given a planet like Earth and enough time, life would appear one way or another. So they use the fraction of one. Wow. The fraction of those that would give rise to intelligence, they guesstimated at 0.5. The fraction of those that would develop detectable technologies was based on our own history, and again, they used the fraction of one. Finally, he suggests that 10,000 years for the length of the time that would be detectable was, quote, a favorite guess. So after plugging all that in, the number he offers in the documentary is 50,000 civilizations in our galaxy. Wow. So if you weren't already familiar with the Drake equation, I expect you now know why it's met with some skepticism. Star formation rates are pretty well understood, and we have some understanding about exoplanets and even which ones might support life, but assigning values to everything else in the equation is pretty much pure speculation. It's hard to make estimates when we know of only one planet with life, never mind intelligent life. We can't draw any conclusions from the Drake equation, and some critics suggest that since the margin of error is so large, it really isn't useful. It's also tied to detecting radio signals, and that's something Adam covered on a previous episode of TRC in the past when we looked at SETI on episode 308. 
Now, it's worth mentioning that there have been several suggestions for revisions or additions to the original equation. For example, astronomer Sarah Seeger proposed an equation that focuses on biosignature gases or gases which are produced by living organisms. So that's the Drake equation. Criticism aside, the reason Drake came up with it was to stimulate conversation about the likelihood of intelligent life elsewhere in a structured way. It's not to give a definitive answer. Yeah, and I I would actually add to that that the first three terms have been dramatically revised since they first proposed this. I mean, the rate of star formation in the galaxy, uh, cosmologists have been studying that for centuries. Well, maybe not centuries. Over a century. Uh, But this idea of the number of planets in a solar system has uh, also just been blown out of the water, completely revolutionized uh, with the uh, discovery of all of these exoplanets just in the last decade or so. And then the fraction of planets or bodies in the solar system that can support life has also completely changed because when Drake was initially coming up with this or when the people in the room were, they didn't even think about habitable moons. So we can think of Europa, we can think of Enceladus. I mean, these are moons of Jupiter and Saturn that could potentially harbor life, and they weren't even thinking of that at the time. I mean, that was before the movie Avatar, so... Stuart, what about things that appear as moons but could be same sort of Death Star? (laughs) No comment. (laughs) But when you talk about Europa, Stuart, not not that I'm going to call an astronomer out on anything, Europa might be able to harbor life, but intelligent life? We don't know. I mean... right. I very much agree with the criticism of the Drake equation in the sense of the other terms, we have absolutely no idea. Uh, We have an N of one. In other words, we have us to go off of. And for us, we can't really think of intelligent technological life that, for example, could live in water because water conducts electricity very, very well. So it's hard to think of how a technologically advanced civilization could develop if it were water dwelling, which is what we would imagine for anything under the surface of the ice in Europa or Enceladus. So it's really hard to speculate about this stuff. I also think it's interesting that we've given ourselves the standard, as we humans typically do, when it could be 50, 100 years, we're more cybernetic, enhanced through robotic technology and artificial intelligence, blending with humans, and then we look back like, that really wasn't intelligent back then, so that didn't count. (laughs) Where's my jetpack, damn it? (laughs) Yeah, well, that also gets into things like the Fermi Paradox, which might be a future episode. Uh, or actually, have you guys talked about it on TRC? Do you know? We haven't, but I read an article today that suggests that the Fermi paradox was n- neither something proposed by Fermi nor a paradox. Yeah, that's it, true. But it's it's on it was on my to do list or one of us anyway. Thanks, Pat, for a fascinating piece of philosophical and observational musings put into the form of an equation. If aliens were ever to come and visit us, Adam, might they be hostile? Great question, Stuart. Are aliens likely to be hostile towards us? I originally tackled this segment way back on episode 88 of the Reality Check podcast in May of 2010. I've since updated and refined my ideas. At the time, Stephen Hawking made headlines. In the documentary series, he said that people should be avoiding contact with aliens because it could turn out for the worse for us. He compared aliens to Christopher Columbus coming to the New World, in this case, coming to Earth. He suggested that aliens would have used up their own planet's resources and would have come to ours to just steal ours. And he actually continues to warn about this, and he mentioned it as recently as 2016. So the idea was not new at the time, and it does persist to this day. 
More recently, the movie Battleship from 2012 has a character which references this exact analogy to Christopher Columbus coming to the New World, which is almost surely based on Stephen Hawking's words. Nothing like a good Battleship reference. (laughs) 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 It's a great movie. It's it's it's. Did you guys even watch it? I enjoyed it. It's fun. It's fun. So, is this at all plausible? If aliens were coming to the Earth for almost any kind of resource, coming here to get that resource seems like a really, really bad play. Water is one example of a resource that aliens are often looking for. Water is abundant in our solar system and the universe in general. Within our solar system, it can also be found in Saturn's rings, many outer moons, and the Oort cloud. These are all much easier to access than the Earth, which is close to the Sun, which requires entering two large gravity wells just to get to the water. That's going to have a lot of energy to escape. Interstellar travel seems impractical to impossible. At the very least, it would require a lot of effort, so we should assume that the aliens would need a good reason to come this far out. All of this to get what? Water full of salts and other impurities? Water is made out of what? Hydrogen, the most common element in the universe, and oxygen, the third most common element in the universe. There is really nothing chemically significant about the Earth. Metals on Earth aren't that rare, but the Earth is potentially rare because of life. So Pat talked about the Drake equation. We don't really know the answer, but it seems that life is relatively rare. Seeing that we haven't encountered it, it might be. To travel through a galaxy, which is mostly devoid of life, and then to strip a planet, which is life-bearing, seems kind of silly. Assuming that aliens are at worst ambivalent to us, they would only strip the Earth if they were also stripping all barren planets as well. Assuming that they cared in the slightest bit about other life, it would be a negligible cost, all considered, to just skip the Earth in the unlikely case that draining planets was their actual plan. If, however, they're looking for life for a reason, we can speculate as to why they might want to kill or enslave us. So why would aliens want to use humans as slaves? Aliens could likely make much better robots or machines that could do the same work we could. Humans are very inefficient. They produce muscle power inefficiently through eating and breathing. Here on Earth, we've replaced horses, dog sleds, and oxen with more efficient machines for the most part, and we're far from developing interstellar travel. Eating humans or other life on our planet as food is the plot of some sci-fi stories, but it's very implausible that our biology from a different ecosystem and a different evolutionary environment could be biologically compatible with that of aliens. Anything they can take from us, they could likely farm from something that they're much more well adapted to. So imagine a human who gets on a boat to go to another country to hunt some wild meat and then bring that back to eat it. It's much more practical to just farm cows and pigs here. Killing people because they're a threat is a possibility, but that's not really what Stephen Hawking was talking about with his example. We could be a threat to resources, not because of those on our own planet, but perhaps because we could eventually be branching off through the galaxy in the future. We could also be seen as a threat to the livelihood of the aliens themselves. It doesn't even need to be a realistic threat. Yeah, this is actually the subject of a lot of uh, pseudoscientists that I listen to in terms of uh, advocates of the secret space program idea where they say that the solar system is actually under quarantine because we're too warlike. Oh, that makes sense. Wow. Just, don't, yeah. just don't go there because we'll, we'll kill them. I was actually going to say the main reason aliens would visit Earth is like a zoo, just to <coughs> watch us in our current stage of development. Just curiosity. Yep. So we don't actually understand how aliens could think, but we can speculate. And this speculation may have limited value. But let's think about it by looking at ourselves. 
Humans have tendencies which may fit their evolutionary environment, but that don't actually fit where we actually live. For example, a human may have an instinct for war to attack and plunder a rival tribe because in their native environment, that rival tribe competes for resources. The human mind doesn't have to consider that when becoming aggressive towards an outgroup. That or other psychology may be at play if we ever encounter an alien race. I want to destroy the alien society, not because I benefit from dis destroying it, but because I am limited in my thought processes and predisposed to go to war based on my evolutionary environment or based on poor analogies to life on my own planet. Humans become less violent over time, but we can't assume this of all species. We can only speculate about the world aliens come from, what their species values, what they've been able to overcome through self-domestication, reason, social development, and things like that. They may very well want to destroy us because we are different, not because it is rational, but simply because in their own evolutionary environment, that is the practice which best benefited them, and despite all else, they can't overcome that base instinct. This is pure speculation. I just want to illustrate that they might want us dead, which could be bad. I think it's a very interesting point. Well, it is pure speculation. We pretty much all believe, though, life had to evolve somewhere for it to exist somewhere. Yep. I don't think anyone's saying it just created because there's a god somewhere else, and he created life there, but it evolved here. So if we're assuming life exists somewhere, it went through some sort of evolutionary process. And as such, there'd be certain likely parameters that come associated with that type of living being. But the question, as you said, is whether they somehow, quote-unquote, transcended those evolutionary impulses. And I think of religion as one example. So... Imagine a rational alien that doesn't have any concept of religion coming to Earth, and then humans here on Earth want to kill the aliens because of something that's said in the Bible or in, in some other holy book. Yeah. Well, now try to imagine something as, as so far removed from what we do as, as religion could be to these aliens. We just, we just don't know what they're thinking. We don't know what their society sort of came up with. Aliens aren't likely to travel the stars just to steal our unimpressive resources. They won't if they know what's good for them, but they might not actually be acting in their own best interests. We don't really know what they could be thinking because their minds are, well, completely alien to us. Boom. That yeah, good stuff. Yeah, no, that was a great ending. Thank you. Thanks, Adam, for perhaps putting some of our fears to bed. But let's say that someone didn't believe you at all. I mean, after all, you talk a lot about Sailor Moon, and maybe this is just a ploy to get the those people to you know, <laughs> come in and silently take us over, and someday we will wake up all enslaved by long-haired Japanese anime. If aliens were to ever come and visit us, might we want some sort of shielding in case they were evil and out to kill us? So I'm going to talk about a recent article that came out in Physical Review Letters about Earth's protective barriers that has absolutely nothing to do with Doctor Strange, for those of you who recently saw that movie and are thinking about magical protective barriers. In this case, it's not magic, it's science. In November of 2016, a news article was published entitled Solar Flare Radiation Burst Cracked. Earth's magnetic field caused radio blackouts. It was talking about an article that was published in the journal Physical Review Letters, and I skimmed the PhysRev article because it is frankly full of a huge amount of jargon and written by non-native English speakers. Two recipes for a very dry, boring, and hard-to-read article. Here are the basics. Earth is surrounded by a magnetic field. 
The magnetic field is dipole in shape, similar to your normal bar magnet that most of you are probably familiar with and may have played with as kids and and uh, had metal iron filings and saw all the cool little magnetic field lines. That's basically what Earth's magnetic field kind of looks like, except uh, there are little modifications to that. Earth's magnetic field can deflect particles uh, which are magnetically charged around the planet. So basically, think of it as uh, you have a big cushion in front of the planet, and if a magnetically charged particle comes streaming towards our planet, that big cushion can deflect that particle around us. But it can also funnel those particles into the poles because that's where the magnetic field lines dive back into the planet. Uh, When these charged particles interact with our atmosphere, that's when we can see the aurora. Uh, It's pretty, and it's also pretty cool. The magnetic field fluctuates, though. Think of a balloon. It's uh, usually a nice, normal balloon-like shape, but if you spray that balloon with a water hose, it's going to deform. And if you spray it with a lot of water hoses in different directions, it's going to get all wiggly-woggly and deform a lot. And that same thing happens with Earth's magnetic field. But unlike a balloon, that deformation of Earth's magnetic field can decrease our field strength in certain places for quite a while, a couple hours, and it can also deflect Earth's magnetic field a large amount. The field is commonly thought to extend very roughly seven times the planet's size out into space before uh, you basically wouldn't be able to measure it at all and you would be measuring the interplanetary magnetic field from the sun. But a very powerful release of charged particles from the sun, basically if the sun burps, it can deform our magnetic field. And so that magnetic field of our planet can deform so much that it dips into the atmosphere when it normally shouldn't. Uh, And that is a huge deflection of the magnetic field. It doesn't actually break or crack, it just deforms. So what the article that will be linked to in the show notes, both on my website, podcast.sjrdesign.net and TRC podcast.com what it talks about is that there was a telescope that tracks particles from outside of our solar system that happened to make it to earth's surface so what do i mean by that because i realize now as i wrote that that makes no sense so what i mean by this is that we have particles from earth We have particles from the sun, and we have particles from beyond the sun. We call those galactic particles, like galactic cosmic rays, and it has all these fancy stuff, uh, fancy names. It just means that these are particles that are coming from beyond the solar system. And the way that we know that they're from beyond the solar system is usually their energy level. So if they're really energetic, they can make it through the sun's own magnetic field, and they can impact Earth. So what these telescopes do on Earth is that they monitor particles with these really, really big energy levels in order to measure, basically, how strong or weak the sun's own magnetic field is, as well as Earth's magnetic field. So on June 22nd of 2015, there was a massive outburst from the sun that struck our planet's magnetic field. What the researchers found was that during that impact of these charged particles from the sun on Earth's magnetic field is that their detection of particles with these really high energy levels that are from outside of the solar system was significantly larger than they normally see and significantly larger than they thought that they should see. 
So they used the data, they ran some models, and what they concluded was that the magnetic field of Earth had been compressed by a factor of 17. So that means that it was crushed effectively by a large amount and deflected into Earth's atmosphere as opposed to extending about seven times the planet's size beyond the surface of the planet. That was the only way they could get so many particles that should have been blocked by Earth's magnetic field to actually strike their detector in their telescope. So now that I've explained it, it seems probably ridiculously technical and probably rather mundane. But what's important is that it adds to our body of knowledge about what can happen to our planet's magnetic field when our sun decides to burp. Now, now, Stuart, I've heard it suggested um, that sort of one thing to keep in mind when you're looking for intelligent planets, Drake equation type of stuff, um, that you would need to consider a planet that has a, a similar magnetic field than us. So are these, um, are these particles that are coming from elsewhere in the galaxy potentially a threat to us or to our life or anything on Earth? Yes. <laughs> With that, that's a very, okay. It was a very long yes, and that's because it's, it's a very qualified answer. Um, and I, I can't say no because it's not that they aren't dangerous. Um, for example, if a nearby supernova goes off, the mm-hmm. charged particles from that supernova are pretty much going to look at Earth and look at our magnetic field and say, <laughs> yeah, right. And okay. <laughs> the magnetic field will pretty much just get crushed. Uh, the particles will impact that half of the planet facing the supernova, and yeah, it could basically wipe out all life on that side of the planet in wow. an instant. Um, this is actually covered in Phil Plate's Death from the Skies book. But even so, a mass yeah. ejection from the sun, Stuart, if it came directly head on, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, fr- something from our sun probably couldn't do something quite like that, but yeah, we have the 1859 Carrington event when. Yeah. Um, it was a massive outburst from the sun. It hit Earth, and it was so powerful that telegraph lines were you know, bursting into flames, and you could run um, some you know, some of the most primitive electronic equipment they had at the time could be run basically without being connected to the power outlet uh, because you know, it, there was wow. just so many charged particles, so much flux going on. Um, you wouldn't want to touch railroad lines, for example, or railroad um, tracks because there, it was just crazy. So if we had another Carrington event, um, we'd be an issue. In fact, uh, you guys up in the frozen north had an issue in 1989. We had not quite a Carrington event-sized event, uh, but we had a massive outburst from the sun that pretty much shut down uh, the power, I think, in Ottawa um, oh, for... Through Quebec, oh, I think. Isn't that the same thing? It's like one big mishmash up there. I live in Quebec and I work in Ottawa, so yeah, it's it's close. Ottawa Ottawa's very close to Quebec, but I think it was Quebec that was. Yeah, and that's on the eastern coast, right? See they don't Central teach part ge- of the country. Yes. Uh, see they don't teach geography to us here in America. Um I <laughs> The eastern eastern part of the country, but not the eastern coast. Yeah. All right. All right. So it's up there in Canada. You guys lost power for I think a few days. Um I I wasn't really paying attention to the news at the time I was six. So, but it it was an issue. And I mean, we could face a similar issue now because I mean, our power grids really are not up to snuff for this kind of thing when it would really cost maybe two or 3 billion to retrofit everything. Um, And we should, I mean, this is a case where something bad really can and kind of will happen. Uh, It's just a matter of rolling the dice and deciding when it's going to happen. 
it becomes a, an issue also if you want to go beyond the planet and beyond the magnetic field. So, for example, um, the astronauts on the International Space Station, they are well below, well within Earth's magnetic field uh, for most of the time, so they're fine. But if we want to go to Mars, we have an issue. And I actually addressed this recently on my podcast on an episode about radiation. I want to say it was episode 154. Uh, and so... I mean, this is a case where if you don't have shielding inside of your spacecraft or on the outside of your spacecraft and the sun burps, you're in for a load of trouble. Uh, getting back to the initial question, though, about finding a planet that uh, is suitable for life, should it have a magnetic field? Probably yes, unless you want to you know, go a few tens or hundreds of meters below the surface in order to create your habitat. With all that said, my transitions are kind of crazy and uh, maybe even lamer than TRC listeners are used to. So, Christina, am I just loony <laughs> because there's a full moon or some other weird moon phase out right now? Well, perhaps. So I first covered this on the reality check when one of our listeners, who's a nurse, wrote in frustrated at how many doctors and nurses believe the phases of the moon have an influence on us. Since you mentioned many of your listeners have written in about the same topic, Stuart, I thought it'd be great to revisit this on your show. Pure lunacy. Pure lunacy. The lunar effect, also sometimes referred to as the Transylvania effect, is a notion that the phases in the roughly 29.5-day lunar cycle somehow influences human behavior and mental health. More specifically, many people believe that when there's a full moon, people are more likely to act out or get injured, commit crimes, and so on. The theory goes even further, suggesting the gravitational effect of the moon affects how our body behaves during things like surgery and with fertility. So I'm sure you guys have heard a lot of people say throughout your lives, there must be a full moon tonight. Um, and usually it's in an effort to explain someone's behavior or some other unusual occurrence that transpires. Lunar comes from the Latin word luna, meaning moon, also the prefix in the word lunatic. Belief in the lunar lunacy effect has persisted since the Middle Ages in Europe when people believed some humans morphed into werewolves or vampires during a full moon. Now, funny enough, this is still a widely held belief, especially with EMS personnel, hospital staff, and police officers who work late night shifts. A few years ago, BBC News reported that some British police departments went as far as actually adding extra officers on night shifts with a full moon. Now, there's been a considerable uh, number of studies over the years aimed at finding any statistical connection between the moon and human behavior or biology. There were at least 40 published studies on the purported lunar lunacy connection and 20 or so published studies on the purported lunar birth rate connection by the late 80s alone. But the majority of legit and reliable studies comparing the lunar phases to hospital admissions, seizures, violence, suicides, births, to name a few, have consistently shown little or no statistical connection. Well, wait, Christina, did they, did they link this at all to the astrological cycles, too? Maybe there's a connection <laughs> if, you know, the moon's in Sagittarius. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yes, that is a huge factor, Stu. <laughs> Just checking. In the case of any studies claiming to reveal some kind of connection, well, those turned out to be flawed, or they haven't been peer-reviewed or uh, easily reproduced. Several extensive literature reviews and meta-analyses have found no correlation between the lunar cycle and human biology or behavior. 
Now, briefly, here's a couple of examples from reputable studies in peer-reviewed journals. Although some patients believe their seizures were triggered by a full moon, a 2004 study in the journal Epilepsy and Behavior found no connection between epileptic seizures and moon phases. A 2005 study by Mayo Clinic researchers uh, that looked at how many patients checked into a psychiatric emergency department between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. found no statistical difference between the three nights surrounding full moons versus other nights. And I should note that they did this over several years. Another study reported in American Journal of Emergency Medicine examined 151,000 records of emergency room visits to a suburban hospital and also found no difference between full moon versus other nights. An article published in PubMed a couple of years ago titled No Evidence of Purported Lunar Effect on Hospital Admission Rates or Birth Rates looked at studies that showed a fraction of nursing professionals believe in a purported correlation between the phases of the Earth's moon and human affairs, specifically birth rates, blood loss, or fertility. Author Jean-Luc Margot, a professor at Department of Earth, Planetary, and Space Sciences and Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of California, looked at a 2004 report suggesting the number of hospital admissions related to gastrointestinal bleeding was somehow influenced by the phases of the Earth's moon. The authors claimed that the rate of hospital admissions to their bleeding unit was higher during the full moon than at other times. But... Their report contained a number of methodological and statistical flaws, and after reanalyzing their data, there was actually no evidence that the full moon influenced the rate of hospital admissions. I thought you were going to say full moon parties tend to happen on full moons. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is actually, that. uh, if I can interject, that relates very much to the last episode I just put out um, in the sense that it's the data that's the important thing. And the analysis is what comes from the data. And you should always be able to go back to the data and see whether the analysis is really supported by it. And so this is a great case where the data might be great, but it sounds like the analysis that they did from that data was not so great. Absolutely. And actually, Margot concluded, data collection and analysis shortcomings, as well as powerful cognitive biases can lead to erroneous conclusions about the purported lunar effect on human affairs, end quote. So why does this urban legend continue to be so widespread? It's easy to blame the media. News coverage over the years hasn't done much to help dispel the myth, nor have countless movies and books perpetuating lunar lunacy. But we can't just blame the media. Confirmation bias, which is the tendency to interpret new evidence as confirmation of our existing beliefs, definitely plays a big role. University of Wisconsin psychologists Lauren and Jean Chapman call this illusory correlation, a perception of an association that does not in fact exist. Let me explain a little bit further. Um, Our minds have a tendency of recalling most events better than non-events. So when there's a full moon and something weird happens, we're more likely to notice and make a connection that'll fit our preconceived notions. But if there's a full moon and nothing noteworthy happens, we don't really make a mental note, right? Mm-hmm. Benjamin Radford, the bad science columnist at lifescience.com, explains it simply. If police and doctors are expecting that full moon nights will be more hectic, they may interpret an ordinary night's traumas and crises as more extreme than usual. Our expectations influence our perceptions, and we look for evidence that confirms our beliefs. Now, some of you may have heard people suggest that since humans are mostly made of water, surely the tides have an effect on us. 
<laughs> While it's true that the average human body can range from 50 to 75% water, I promise the moon is not magically disrupting the water molecules in your nervous system. First of all, the gravitational effects of the moon are too small to have any meaningful effect on our brains or behavior. The late astronomer Georgia Bell of UCLA noted that a mosquito sitting on your arm exerts a more powerful gravitational pull on you than the moon does. Also, the moon's gravitational force only affects open bodies of water like oceans and lakes, not contained sources of water. So if you're still not convinced, the highest tides don't just occur during a full moon, but also during a new moon when the moon is between the earth and the sun. So the gravitational effect of the moon is just as strong during the new moons when the moon is invisible to us. Yeah, they're about 40 to 45% stronger. So there you have it. And the more one thinks about it, the more peculiar it seems. Because as you just pointed out, it's not like the moon goes away. You can just see less of it from Earth because that's what the sun is illuminating from that particular perspective. So then you'd have to go like, well, it must be the illumination from that slice of the moon and not the gravity, which, as you said, has no effect. It really just doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. What about um, the moon potentially having some effect on non-human animals, such as um, the idea of wolves howling at the full moon? Is that all kind of nonsense as well? On an earlier segment on TRC that I did, Adam, we found that wolves do indeed howl at many things, including moons. Okay. And then people have a selective memory about seeing a wolf howl at the moon, but wolves do not seek moons to howl at them specifically. I got it. And finally, I want to do a TRC classic and patent pending segment. Name that. Powers of 10 edition, a.k.a. everybody's favorite mostly guessing game. In episode 429, Pat had a segment that surprised lots of people on the scale of things, specifically about trees on Earth versus stars in the Milky Way. I thought that it would be interesting to do something similar with powers of 10 in the universe, although mostly in the solar system because that's what I study. There will be five questions, all multiple choice, plus a bonus question if needed, which I doubt will be needed. I've already selected the order. I'll let you know what it is momentarily. The first question is... How many Earths could fit across Jupiter? A, one Earth, B, 10, C, 100, or D, 1,000? So, Pat, going first, how many Earths could fit across Jupiter? Jupiter's enormous. I'll go with 1,000. Okay. Pat chooses D. Adam. Some reason I wanted to say 39, but you're going for powers of 10, so I'm going to go with 100. I think it's because we're going across and we're not doing volume, in which case it would be, you know, to the power of 3. Darren, next? Yeah, so to clarify, do you mean, like, diameter or partially yes. circumference? I mean diameter. Then I will also pick 100, which I think is C. Okay. And last but not least, Christina. I'm with Pat. Jupiter's pretty damn big. I'd say D. All right. This round goes to Stuart. The answer is B. Only 10. What? Wow. Hmm. Yeah. See, that's the thing, is that you think Jupiter is huge. But in terms of actual diameter, so linear length, mm -hmm. it's not as big as you think. It's when you get to the volume that it's much huger. <laughs> I've heard a thousand Earths could fit inside Jupiter. Is that approximately correct? Yep. So if you cube 10, Damn it. you get a thousand. Second question is similar. How many Jupiters could fit across the sun? A, 1, B, 10, 
C, 100, or D, 1,000. And what we'll do is we'll just rotate. So, Adam, you go first. Is the ratio of Earth to Jupiter equivalent <laughs> to Jupiter to Sun, or is it... I think the ratio of Sun to Jupiter is going to be greater, so I'm going to go with C, 100. Okay. Darren? I will pick 10. Okay. Christina? C. Okay, 100? Yeah. And Pat? I'm very wary now. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I'm going to go rogue and go 1,000 again. Yeah, I was going to do that too, but... All right. This round goes to Darren. It is 10. (laughs) Basically, as... I already forget who said. Uh, It's a very nice ratio of Earth to Jupiter to the sun. Um, Mm -hmm. One to ten, one to ten. And that also tells us uh, basically how much light a Jupiter-sized planet is going to block from a sun-like star. Because you can take the linear length and square it to get the area. So a Jupiter-sized planet is going to block 1% of the surface area of the sun as Jupiter goes in front of it. So... That's also how we can kind of figure out how big these exoplanets are if they go in front of their star is just Mm -hmm. by looking at the amount of light that they block. So, again, we usually think that Jupiter is going to be, you know, it's it's huge compared to Earth, but we think the sun, it's huge compared to everything else. But really, in terms of length, it's another just power of 10 or factor of 10. The length is the key, because I happen to know about a million Earths fit inside the sun, and about a thousand Earths fit inside Jupiter. So after the first time, so, like, yeah. let's not screw up the math, and okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, good math. Yeah. Mental math. Yay. So the third question is, how many Earths could fit in a line, so again, we're talking about diameter, between Earth and the sun? A, a billion. <laughs> B. Oh, boy. <laughs> B, 10 million. C, 100,000, or D, 1,000. So basically, these are going down by a factor of 100 each time. So somewhere between a billion and a 1,000. How many Earths can fit in a line between Earth and the sun? And coincidentally, Darren, you're going first. Okay, I'm going to need a moment. <laughs> That's okay. This, That's what the, this is where the math comes in again. I'm going to go with... Hmm. 100,000. Next, Christina. I'm going to go with C as well. I'll agree with Darren. All right. What would Darren do? Pat is next. So, sorry, just again, Stuart, 1,000, 100,000, 10 million, or a billion? Yes. 1,000, 100,000, 10 million, or a billion, although I named them in reverse order. Like, my math's not... My math's not working out to any of those. Yeah, I had the same problem, Pat. (laughs) Hopefully I did my math correctly. So I'll agree with uh, both Christina and Darren on 100,000. Okay. And Adam. I'm trying to go with, like, time it takes light to get to the Earth from the sun. I think it's like eight minutes, but I don't know how long it takes light to get from one side of the Earth to the other, and it doesn't because it would have to go through it. But... That number in seconds is pretty low, so I'm going to go with D, 1,000, even though that number seems very low, but it's my guess. All right, and the answer is Stuart was wrong. 
Yeah, see, the number that we want is missing, and I think it's 10,000, right, Stuart? That's what I think yes. so, too. So that's what my math says, 10,000. That's why I'm shaking my head. <laughs> I, thought, I thought we wanted about eighteen or 19,000, actually. Well, over, uh, yeah, over 10,000 is what I'm coming up with. Yeah, and the closest thing to pick was C. That's why I went with that one, too. Yeah. So, so uh, the sun is about 150 million kilometers away, is that correct? Yeah, so I, I just did about 12,000 right now. Uh, and the Earth has a radius of 4,000 kilometers? Uh, the Earth's radius is 6,700-something oh. or so. So what are we going to do with that, Stuart? Uh, yeah. We're going to leave it in and say that Stuart can screw up sometimes, too. All right. I think it's important that several of uh, the non-astronomy podcasts did a better answer than the astronomer. <laughs> yeah. No, no. This, this is an important case that some of us, even if we have gigantic egos, are still big enough to admit when we made a mistake and apologize to the group. So question number four. And this is a lengthy one. So we often see in sci-fi movies some sort of asteroid belt that ships are weaving through and trying desperately not to hit a rock. Uh, Star Wars comes to mind of doing this. Most listeners probably know that this isn't real. Sorry, Star Wars fans. But what is the actual amount of empty space? Specifically, if you were to, say, flatten the entire asteroid belt, just to make the math a little bit easier, if you were to flatten the entire asteroid belt in our solar system... Very roughly speaking, what percent of the area would have a rock in it? A, 50%, so one in two parts. B, only 1% would have a rock. C, only 0.1%, so one part in a thousand would have a rock. D, one part in a million. Or E, one part in a billion. So this is basically a question asking you, how empty is the asteroid belt? Is it, mo you know, how mostly filled is it versus mostly empty? So those choices, again, were 50% rock, 50% not, 1% rock, 99% not, 0.1% rock, and then one part in one million, so 0. 0.0001, or one part in a billion. Christina! You're the lucky person who gets to go first. <laughs> oh, As boy. I said, this is everybody's mostly favorite guess. No, everybody's favorite mostly guessing game. There we go. It's funny because I was actually just reading about um, just a bunch of myths about movies and stuff. And that was one of the top myths that people just think that ships are flying through tons of asteroids when it's really not true. I'm going to go with a D, the second last okay. one that you mentioned, the million. So. Only one part in a million. Mm -hmm. Producer Pat. Um, there's no E in the mostly favored guessing game. There's no. There's no. There's never an E. <laughs> what is this that you're introducing? He's your going story? rogue. I added it. Um, it it's patent pending. It's not patented yet. I can change it. So, so I've been burned by this by the first two questions, but the asteroid <laughs> belt is huge, and there's not that much stuff in it. Uh, I. I my inclination is to agree with Christina and say one part in a, in a million. Okay. Next, Adam. So I'm assuming you're not flattening it, like, across the entire sphere. You're just saying you're, you're flattening it, like, crushing it down um, into, like, yes. a 2D plane, but still around that. Um, it's really tricky because, you know, I kind of assume the asteroid belt that the entire mass is roughly the size of a planet, you know, Mars-ish. Um Final Fantasy IV, they say that there was a planet that got destroyed there. Um, oh, let's not go there. But it's covered in two episodes of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. 
Um, but it's not so much to say that the the area that the Earth would cover or a planet would cover would 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 be the same because there's also the depth there if it's broken up. So there's a little more to it um, because of that, and because of just the simple fact that we can actually see these asteroids. Um, I'm gonna say it's gonna be D. That's one in one million. Also, you know, if we're talking about Star Wars. Um, we didn't mention Star Wars specifically. I don't have to get into that. It's too geeky. You're on a science podcast. I think geeky is given. Mm-hmm. So in the first Star Wars movie, <laughs> when they come out of hyperspace, they're not actually in the asteroid belt. They just think they're in the asteroid belt. The, the mistake could be Hans for simply thinking that an asteroid belt is that dense, but it's actually the remains of Alderaan that got destroyed. So it could actually be fairly dense depending how quickly um, it had expanded after being destroyed. Okay, so There's nerds everywhere do not need to send in a correction for me. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> Darren. <laughs> well, I think this goes to that old saying, you know, the optimist sees the asteroid belt as 50% full and the pessimist sees it as a billion full. <laughs> so, with that in mind, and I think it would make the game more interesting if I guess C, one in a thousand. Whoa. All right. Uh, I, that's not where I thought you were going to go because you said billion. Um, and the answer is D, roughly one part in a million. So... Everyone at the moment is tied, except for Stuart, who has zero points because he lost one with the last question. Question five. Stars live and die based on how massive they are. Bigger stars with more mass live shorter lives because even though they have a lot more mass, they go through their material much faster than lower mass stars. Our sun has a roughly estimated lifetime of 10 billion, with a B, years. Red dwarf stars are the lowest mass stars out there, slowly piddling away their material, which is only about 8 to 50% as much as the sun. What is the lifetime of these stars? A, for all of you young Earth creationists out there, less than 10,000 years. B, hundreds of millions, with an M, years. C, tens of billions with a b years so tens of you know some small multiple times the um, lifetime of the sun d trillions of years e quadrillions of years or f scientists don't know so you're free to make up your own alternative facts now that you're all thinking about that first up is going to be pat again Where's an F coming in now, Stuart? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's yeah. a big F happening right now. Uh, this is Pat saying, Stuart, you're never allowed to do this again. <laughs> so I uh, think it was D, but I'm going to go with trillions of years. Adam. If it's D or E, it hasn't happened yet. So I'd partially be tempted to say F, but I think that... It's astronomers can still model and say this is how long we assume they would survive even though one has never actually you know been depleted in the history of the universe so i'm going to go with e quadrillions of years how no matter how many zeros that is it's a, it's a button it's another factor of a thousand after a trillion there you go 15 all right so darren so um I believe C was the tens of billions. Is that correct? Yes. Does that mean the tens of billions goes up to a trillion? No, it goes up to, up to 99 ten, up to, billion. 
Okay. I will pick that. I got 99 billions, and this question is one of them. <laughs> All right. Christina. Hmm. I'm going to go with D. All right. Pat and Christina win this Woo! one. High five. With D. Trillions of years. Congrats. Um, and for special interest, in case people are interested out there, which they're probably not, but well, we're going to pretend they are, um, there are... Or the lifetime of blue giant stars is about tens to hundreds of thousands of years. So really, really, really short. And they get up to about six to 20 times as hot as the sun, whereas red dwarf stars are about 60% as hot as the sun. So 60% makes it last thousands of times longer? So they're just big? They last a really long time because they go through their material much more slowly so it's not really a linear relationship and they can also go through more of their material than other stars can so the sun can only burn through about 10 percent of its material before it dies and that's just because it's not going to be able to be the right density and temperature and therefore pressure uh, to fuse hydrogen into helium throughout its entire mass Whereas red dwarf stars are able to do that for a longer period of time and use more of their material for uh, the actual fusion process. So it, it has to do with a lot of different things. I wrote a bonus question, uh, but we'll just say that Pat and Christina win together, jointly. And I'm just going to read off the bonus question and discuss the answer a little bit because I think it's interesting. It's just a really badly worded question. So... The question has to do with four different ratios. First, what is the ratio of the diameter of an average large city relative to the diameter of the sun? The second part of it is what's the diameter of the sun relative to the diameter of the solar system? Third is the diameter of the solar system to the diameter of the galaxy. And then fourth part is the diameter of the galaxy to the diameter of the observable universe. So because this is a powers of 10 question or themed question, series of questions. All of these are in powers of 10. And the way that I originally wrote it, the que- the answers are all over the place, anywhere from a factor of 1,000 to a factor of 10 to the 20. The answer is that they're all basically the same. Ooh. So the diameter of an average-sized city to the sun is about one to a million. The diameter mm-hmm. of the sun to the diameter of the solar system, depending on exactly how you define it, is about one to one to 10 million. The diameter of the solar system relative to the galaxy, a little bit smaller, about 1 to 100,000. And then the diameter of the galaxy to the observable universe is about, again, 1 to a million. So the point here is that if any of you thought that any of these answers were really small or really, really, really big, that's not actually the case. It's kind of like going back to the first question of the size of the Earth relative to Jupiter, Jupiter relative to the Sun, the second question things in space are not necessarily as large as you might think they are. So thanks again for coming on. Um, where can the listeners find you as if we didn't pepper enough references throughout the show? You can find us on our website on trcpodcast.com or through iTunes or any other podcast feed searching for The Reality Check. Great show. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. Until next time, think better to act better. Peace out, cuboids. Stay classy and not smartassy. Space is vast. Don't be a smartass. Nicely done. Good night, everyone.
Thanks again to the whole crew from the Reality Check podcast for coming on and spending about two hours of their time with us, uh, and plus all the prep work that they did in order to talk about their different segments. I also want to give a huge thanks to producer Pat, who was able to somehow take a, well, about two hours of audio and pare it down to about an hour and seven to ten minutes, which cut out all of the missteps, all of the restarts, all of the kind of stuff where you just, you know, you need to start over. He was able to get rid of all that, and he did a lot of the work for this joint episode. Uh, so then I cut it down by about five minutes more for this podcast, and then for their podcast, episode 435, they just took three of the segments, uh, Darren's on whether we live in a black hole, Pat's on the Drake equation, and then mine on solar flares versus Earth's magnetic field. I also want to give a short correction. So I was sort of speaking off the cuff a couple times, and I got one thing sort of wrong, and that was when Pat was discussing the Drake equation, and he discussed the 21-centimeter line. So the issue is that hydroxyl, which is an oxygen and a hydrogen atom, uh, will emit light at about 18 centimeters, which is radio, and hydrogen will emit light at about 21 centimeters. Combined, these form water. Combined, they also radiate at both 18 and 21 centimeters, while the spectrum between the two, so between 18 and 21, is relatively quiet in terms of background noise. Hence, this is a good range to look at for intelligent life, so the thinking goes, because A, there's not much natural stuff that emits light between the two, and B, because we think that water is important for life, and intelligent civilization might also think to transmit at that wavelength as though saying, yeah, we know that this is important for life too, and hence why it's called the cosmic water hole, not the cosmic water ring hole, as I said. Uh, so that is the quick correction. And that's going to do it for this episode of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Join me next time in the second half of February. That wraps up this set of topics for the 157th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can even tweet me, at PseudoAstro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. In this episode, we covered four listener requests. Please also write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Google Play, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, and random people that you may or may not ever meet in real life.